what we were just singing in Psalm 32. Uh, some of that is indeed uh, what you see happening in the lives of the brothers of Joseph. Um, so we continue um, with reading through Genesis and the story of Joseph. And today our scripture reading is uh, Genesis 42. And the text that we give the most attention to are the verses 5 to 24. But we read, uh, read chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel, verse 5 is the beginning of our text. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? And he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And he said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men, and your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And he said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh, you should not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are an honest man, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear that. Therefore, therefore, this distress had come upon us. 
And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you wouldn't listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And then we continue reading in the chapter, but this is the end of the text. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. Here it is in my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and told them all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us. They took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My sons shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Thus far, the word of God. And so we focus, as we mentioned, I'm not going to read it again, uh, Genesis 42, 5 to 24. Immediately uh, after the proclamation of the gospel, we will sing uh, Psalm 18, verse 9. Psalm 18, verse 9 is our song of response. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The history of Joseph is full of dramatic and emotional moments. You won't find many stories in the Bible with so many colorful details as well. We get, the, we get a picture of life in ancient Egypt, we come across many recognizable situations in the highlights and in the hardships Joseph had to deal with. And all this makes it a very human story. 
in the sense that we can often relate to Joseph in the things he's going through, things we recognize. However, that's not it. You could say the same thing about many well-written novels or biographies. But here, everything that happens is linked to the relationship between God and his people, to God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the promise of God for all the nations, all the families of the earth. The Lord himself is teaching us to recognize uh, the, the unexpected and surprising ways in which he fulfills his promises, in which he unfolds his plans and is going to complete what he has decided. And we only go by what we see of it, uh, the way in which God is often, is leading our life is, is often confusing, right? It's a labyrinth, it's a maze. We may see all kinds of random events in our lives, in the lives of our loved ones, but it looks like there's no connection. That's because of our limitations. A lot of people think that what's happening is just a matter of good luck or bad luck. You have to wait and see what's going to happen to you. Chance, fortune, whatever you want to call it. Other people are convinced that everything must have a natural and logical and reasonable cause. So you can figure it out for yourself. But when God opens the eyes of your faith, you will learn to see that He governs everything. You will recognize His guidance and his action in all the events in your life, you will recognize that as a new reality. All the seemingly random events, apparently without any coherence, they're all ruled by God's hands, according to God's plan. And nothing can stop the Holy God from fulfilling his promises and from completing his work on the way to the coming of Jesus. This is how Jacob's sons came to Egypt, and Joseph meets his brothers. That's the message this morning. Joseph meets his brothers, which gives new hope for the future of God's covenant. What we see in this story is that dreams come true, that the reliability must be tested, and that the past returns. Joseph meets his brothers, which means new hope for the future of God's covenant. Dreams come true, the reliability must be tested, but the past returns. Congregation, the end of chapter 41, we've read last week. That end of chapter 41 prepares us already for the new developments in this chapter and the next chapters. It says in 41 verse 57, at the end of what we saw last week, that all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was very serious over all the earth. And if we read in verse 5, beginning of a text in chapter 42 that we read this morning, that the sons of Israel came also to buy grain among other people that came from different countries. So here's a new line. You know, the, the, the lines of, of, of Joseph and the rest of the family were, were sort of separated. 
when Joseph was sold. And here is the new line that will come and cross the line of what happened in Joseph's life. And at this intersection, it will come to the final and surprising unraveling of this part of the history of God's redemption. Everything in the chapters 42 and 43 and 44 is leading to the defining moment that we will witness, and that's later on, but in the beginning of chapter 45. So the famine was also in the land of Canaan, verse 5. This is how God does it, right, in the world. God is the almighty king. He's the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And in his power, he sort, sort of moves around through the Middle East with a lack of food. He does that for his purpose. Today we live in a world in which the economic structures and circumstances are very different than at that time. Our food supply is under control. Right? Even if you have a bad year for the harvest, you can still go to your grocery store and get what you need. You pay a bit more for it perhaps, but that's how we control things. We are in control. And then there is a fire is on the loose and there is a pandemic coming and people panic. People feel anxious. People feel insecure. What's the future going to look like? But remember today, God's control is the same as it was in Joseph's days. Our lives, with all the provisions that we need and that we can control, our whole livelihood, our health and wealth, everything is in God's hands, God's fatherly hands. And even when the going gets tough, your father's faithfulness will never fail you. He has provided, and he will provide according to his plan. And he does so to serve progress of his work in your life, in the church, and in the world. Those years of famine in Egypt had been arranged by the Holy God himself. Think of the dreams of the Pharaoh in the previous chapter. This whole perilous situation must serve his purpose to bring Jacob and the whole family to Egypt. The God of the covenant is going to set his people apart. Outside of the promised land, he is going to prepare them for the future in the promised land. Look what the Lord is doing. He prepares the meeting in our text in view of the future of Israel, of the coming of the son of Abraham, who will be a blessing for all the nations, Jesus Christ. That's, that's why these brothers must come and share in Joseph's abundance of grain. At that time, Joseph is still the most powerful viceroy in Egypt. First seven years, years of abundance are over. And now he is busy distributing his stockpiles of grain. Now, of course, Joseph didn't do it all by himself throughout the country. He, he would oversee the logistics. He would, he would be the supervisor, the final administration. But, of course, Joseph had his officials to look after local operations throughout the country. And it makes you wonder, why were these ten men from Canaan brought before Joseph himself? Now, you can say that was the will of God. Sure. 
But the Egyptian off, official who sent them there did not know the will of God. The Egyptian official who met him first, he said to them, where are you guys from? Oh, we're from Canaan. Oh, then you'll have to see the boss first. Anyhow, after the long journey to Egypt to buy food, all the sons of Jacob, with the exception of Benjamin, the youngest one, are first brought before Joseph. Now, Hebrew shepherds appear in the presence of one of the mighty Egyptian rulers. And what do they do? Well, what are they supposed to do, of course? They bowed before him with their faces to the ground. That's how you show proper respect. Right? In verse 10, they address Joseph as my Lord, and they call them themselves your servants. Now, a casual Egyptian onlooker would not notice anything special. This is just a normal way to pay respect to a man in Joseph's position. And yet, what a moment it was for these men. What a moment. At that time, they didn't realize it, but Joseph did. He recognized them right away. So imagine what must have gone through his mind. It was not so strange, of course, that Joseph's brothers did not recognize him. He was 17 years old when they sold him. This is more than 20 years later. And whatever they might have expected to find Joseph in Egypt, not in the government. And then there is Joseph's Egyptian dress and his Egyptian name and his Egyptian haircut and the fact that they communicated to an interpreter. That's interesting. The curious thing is that Joseph kept it that way. He pretended to be the stranger they thought him to be. Why would he do so? It's probably not easy for him. So why does he want to keep the distance, at least for a while? Well, all of a sudden, Joseph recognizes what the Lord has been doing. But he wants to make sure that his brothers are also coming to acknowledge what the Lord has been doing. It says that Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. Now, you remember those dreams from Genesis 37. In one, his sheaf of grain stood upright. The sheaves of his brothers bowed down to it. In another one, the sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing to him. Pretty weird dreams, actually. And his brothers hated him for it. It almost killed him. But by selling him into slavery, they could make sure that nothing would come from this silly dream business. And Joseph, for the longest time, he had been groping in the dark. He had no idea what God's intention was. I mean, God helped him to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. He had helped him to figure out the dreams of Pharaoh. What about his own dreams? What could possibly be the purpose? Somehow the Lord must have something special for him to do. What was it? And when would it be God's moment to show? And now the dreams come true. Here's the fulfillment. As they bow down with their faces to the ground, Joseph sees it happening literally before his very eyes. And what does Joseph do? 
when he sees them. Does Joseph enjoy the moment with malicious pleasure? Sort of like, hey guys, remember what I told you 20 years ago? The chickens come home to roost. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, Joseph doesn't do that. Now everything falls in place for Joseph. Now he sees the real meaning. Not just of his own dreams, but of many other things that have determined his journey ever since. Even, even the plot of his brothers to silence him forever. Now he recognizes how God himself directed all these events for the sake of his promises. For the future of his people. And now Joseph also recognizes his own unique position. As, as the high-ranking governor in Egypt. For the same purpose. In this unique position, God gives him the responsibility for his brothers, for his father, for the whole covenant community. And that is, that is not only about providing food. Joseph is called to pave the way of rest, restoration and reconciliation in Jacob's family. God's people. Let me put it that way. Do you recognize the picture of your Savior Jesus? My brother, my sister, he is God's pattern. He is leading his people through the mediator in unity of faith and life towards the promised land. He did so at that time and he does so today in Jesus Christ. Are you ready to be part of that? That journey? The road we are going has many inexplicable twists and turns. Sometimes you may think it doesn't go anywhere. But just follow your Savior. Just follow your mediator, Jesus. He heals what is broken. And trust that your Father has his eyes fixed on the goal, the destination, all the time. So it was when Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt. Life in the covenant family was seriously damaged by the influence of the Canaanite culture and religion. Many in Jacob's family ignored the call to be God's holy people. Think of Simeon and Levi, Genesis 34. Think of Reuben's sin, Genesis 35. Think of the hatred towards Joseph, Genesis 37. And think of Judah. In chapter 38, cozying up to the Canaanite immoral culture. On top of that, the old sin had never been confessed. What had happened more than 20 years ago has caused a rift between Jacob and his sons, a rift among the brothers, and between them and the Lord. The sin was kept hidden, and that frustrates the communion with God. Is this not how it goes in God's covenant? Is this not how it goes in the church sometimes? Serious sins that have never been confessed and never been properly dealt with will destroy human relationships. But also the relationship with God. Only when such hidden sins are confessed and forgiven, only then there can be a real healing. That means here that for Joseph's brothers, this journey will become utterly confrontational. 
And in God's plan, Joseph is the one with the responsibility to make that happen. And so that's what he's going to do. He will confront them in such a way that they may come to confess their sin before their father, before Joseph, and before the Holy God. Some people might say for, to uh, Joseph, this is your chance to get him. Now you can take revenge. Now you can pay them back for what they have done to you 20 years ago. He could have killed them. He could have had them enslaved for the rest of their lives. Would have been easy enough. He has all the power. But Joseph is not going to do that. He sees his dreams come true. And he realizes God is not giving me the opportunity for personal revenge. Or personal anger. There's more at stake here. As the Egyptian viceroy, he finds himself to be the savior. The savior of his father's family. The savior of those who carried the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise of the great savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about the progress of God's work, of God's gracious salvation. Always says that he spoke roughly to them. He interrogates them as a bunch of unreliable strangers. He accuses them of spying on the land. But that does not reflect Joseph's real feelings. A few times we read in these chapters that Joseph had a hard time controlling his emotions. His heart goes out to his brothers. But he knows that the Lord has called him to open the way of restoration and reconciliation for the future. That's why he needs to put them to the test. That brings us to our second thought. The fact that Joseph charges his brothers with spying on the land uh, is, is not as far-fetched as it may sound. In those days, Egypt was often facing hostile attacks from tribes that were living in the southern part of Canaan. And there was reason to be alert. I mean, there was hunger among the people in Canaan, but there's enough food in Egypt. They can do two things. You can go and buy it, you can also organize a raid and steal it. So the conversation turns pretty ugly. Nasty. I mean, it's hard to defend yourself against such an accusation. I mean, you can say, we're not spies, but you cannot prove that you're innocent. How can you prove that you are not spies? And the charge is serious enough to land you in jail for the rest of your life or against the death penalty. They realize this. And so they <laughs> vehemently deny the accusation. They assure this grim Egyptian ruler that they are decent folk, peaceful intentions, shepherds who mind their own business, honest people, all from the same family. They're not interested in war, so I would spy. Well, they can talk to the blue in the face. He does not want to believe them. He simply repeats the accusation all the time. Buying grain is an excuse for you guys to travel around in Egypt and see and find out where you can attack the country. In a final attempt to convince the man of their innocence, depicts in more detail the family circumstances. That's verse 13. There were 12 of us, they say. Youngest is at home with dad, and this one, there isn't, he is no more. 
Now, that's, a, that's, of course, a vague and evasive way of putting it. They don't want to say that he's dead. They can't be sure, but that could have been true in the meantime, of course. However, they don't feel like telling him the truth either. After all, it has been a long time, and this Egyptian official won't care about that anyway. But when they mention their youngest brother Benjamin, Joseph seizes the opportunity for his next step on God's way of reconciliation, God's way of new hope for the future. He maintains the charge, but I will give you a chance to prove your innocence, he says. I'll put you to the test. You can prove to be an honest man by bringing your youngest brother to me. One of you will go get him, and the rest of you I will hold hostage. In all of this, Joseph is looking for evidence of a new attitude, a new unity among his brothers. And actually, not only that he's looking for it, he's actually working on it. Right? He's pushing for it. He's pushing for a new and changed attitude towards the hidden sins of the past. An attitude of love towards Benjamin, towards his father. Are they willing now? And are they ready to confess their sin, to be reconciled to God and to embrace God's love? Are they ready for that? It's a good question. I mean, we can claim to be God's church. We, we, we claim to be God's covenant people, right? But how can there be joy and encouragement? How can we flourish together when people hold grudges against each other? How often does that not happen? How can we enjoy mutual trust and unity? How can the work of the Lord move forward if I am not willing to humble myself, if I am not willing to confess my sin and to ask for forgiveness and to grant forgiveness if somebody else asks me? We often need to break down the walls of stubborn human pride between God's children. And by the grace of God in Jesus, that is possible. And when we do that, it will also remove the walls between God and us. Think of Paul's words in Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now to reinforce how serious that is, Joseph imprisons all of them for a few days. That's humiliating. Must have been days full of fear and uncertainty. But he meant to impress on them the need for reconciliation, the need for restoration. Then when Joseph meets his brothers again, he seems to be a bit more reasonable. At least that's how he comes across. He has decided that only one will have to stay behind as hostage and the rest is allowed to go home. He even instructs them to take enough grain for their starving families. Going to be kind of confusing that now all of a sudden this grumpy Egyptian governor is so worried about the well-being of their wives and children. At the same time, the requirement is the same. Joseph insists on that. You must bring me your youngest brother to prove your reliability. The test still stands. 
So will they show concern for each other? Will they worry about the one they will leave behind in Egypt more than about the one they sold to Egypt a long time ago? Will their attitude towards Benjamin be different from the attitude towards Joseph in the past? And how are they going to deal with their father? It's going to be a crucial time for God's people. Will they repent? Will they reunite? Will they trust and obey? They must come to realize how urgent it is for the future of God's work and God's people. Whether they like to face their father Jacob with this message or not, they don't have a choice. If they refuse, they will probably die. But it's not going to be easy. They know Jacob's special affection for Benjamin, especially since Joseph disappeared. How are they going to persuade him to let him go? Indeed, Joseph's heart goes out to his brothers, to God's people. But that's exactly why he puts them through all this. He wants their hearts to be right before God. We must all learn again and again how the consequences of unconfessed sins darken our lives with the Lord and with each other as God's people. This burden can be removed only when we turn to Jesus with a humble heart, ready to confess, ready to repent, ready to ask for God's grace and forgiveness, ready to forgive each other. So trust in this life, a new beginning, is always possible. And so they did, it says in Genesis 20. Well, they didn't really have an alternative either, of course. At the same time, they do feel they do feel that the mess they find themselves in is not just a coincidence. See, no one in Egypt mentioned the name of the lost brother. No one has indicated that he has heard about some Canaanite slave somewhere. Nothing was said that would have reminded them of their sin in their lives 20 years ago. And yet Joseph is not the only one who thinks back to that time. Joseph is not the only one who sees the link between what happened back then and what's happening today. His brothers do the same thing. Their thoughts go also back to those days. They realize that somehow the past is catching up with them. It won't leave them alone. They've tried to hide it. It's almost successful. They've been able to keep it away from their father. They kept it a secret. Even if it was grieving and weeping, thinking that Joseph was dead. But things are changing. The Lord confronts them with themselves. He forces them to deal with what they have never dealt with. They have always been able to avoid it, but not anymore. How often do we not need that? How often do we not try to hide and cover up our sins? How often do we not try to diminish our sins? Yeah, I know it wasn't right what I was doing, but why make a big deal of it? No one knows about it anyway. Why kick a sleeping dog? Let bygones be bygones. And then God comes to confront us with ourselves because wrongs must be righted. We don't always like that. It can be humiliating. It can be embarrassing when the past returns to haunt you. Yet there is something liberating in it. 
In the end, there is the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Confessing your guilt will open the way of forgiveness. It will give you new hope in your Savior, Jesus. If God would let it just go, you would never be free from the burden of your sin. Joseph's brothers look at each other and they say to each other, you know what this is all about. God is after us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. God is after us. Remember how scared he was? Remember how Joseph cried out to us? But we ignored it. We didn't care. And now he's probably suffering in slavery. Or he's sitting in some stinking dungeon somewhere. If he is still alive. God is after us. Yes, Joseph's harsh words and messages are driving them into that corner. But they come to realize God's justice is haunting us. After all, God knows exactly what happened more than 20 years ago. They may have tried to hide it and not to think of it. They may have hoped that even God would forget the whole thing. But the past is returning. You can actually say that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of these men. The Holy Spirit is using the hostile reception in Egypt to tear down the walls, to make them see the depth of their guilt towards Joseph, toward their father, and towards God. They begin to realize that with God, the past can never be just the past. Now, Reuben can't help reminding them of what he had said back then already. I told you to leave the boy alone. Look at the mess we are in now. They're talking out loud. No one will be able to understand what they were saying anyway. And Joseph leaves them under the impression that he does not speak their language. In the meantime, Joseph fully understands what the conversation is about. And what he hears moves his heart. He perceives a change. He perceives a new beginning there by the grace of God will open the way of reconciliation. Renewal to the glory of God and the benefit of his people. And, and, and so for a minute, Joseph has to turn away from them. To, to hold his tears back. That's how strong he is longing for his loved ones. But it's too early. And like Joseph was bound to be sold to Egypt. Now they see again one of them being bound before their eyes to remain in Egypt. And off to Canaan they go. One day long ago they had come home with ten instead of eleven. And now they come home with nine instead of ten. And their hearts are full of fear and confusion. Their conscience accuses them because they know that both homecomings 20 years ago and now, both of these homecomings somehow are connected. What they do not know yet is that in this way the God of the covenant is working on the future of his work that he himself is stirring up new hope, that he is opening up new ways for the fulfillment of his promises, his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And nothing and no one is going, God, to stop. Amen.